agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined today by both Ken Katkin, a professor at law at Chase Law School, and Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hey, Trey. Hey. Well, it's exciting. We're going to actually have another three-way politics guys episode, I think in large part because we're all a little bit eager (laughs) to talk in to talk yeah. impeachment, right? I mean, uh, this has been, I think, the oxygen in the, the political room uh, for some time. And as listeners uh, might know, I even had the opportunity to be in D.C. Uh, for the, uh, the vote on witnesses and for that entire day. And so I actually had done a, uh, a quick take just on that from D.C. So I, I have my own kind of point of view. I think uh, some of our supporters have heard that. So I'm going to let you guys start off. What do you think about the resolution this week to impeachment? Uh, we do, in fact, have a crossover. There's some ramifications for that in, in uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, so, uh, Ken, why don't you start? Well, I mean, I, 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 I was satisfied with the resolution. You know, I favored impeachment and removal, and he didn't get removed. So, you know, that could be disappointing. But, of course, it... it um, it was never a serious prospect uh, that he would be removed. And I think the I think the the House managers, I think, made the case. And I think the fact that Mitt Romney became the first senator in American history to vote to remove a president uh, of his own party, thereby making it a bipartisan vote for removal. I was pleased with that. I was also pleased with the fact that the, the 48 senators who voted for removal were elected by 69 million Americans, and that's 7 million Americans more than ever voted for Donald Trump. So I, I took some consolation from that as well. I'm, I'm glad that math made you feel better about that, Ken. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so, Michael, what were your feelings on uh, the impeachment, uh, any portion of it, or the outcome specifically here? I, I got to say, guys, I am so incredibly conflicted. It seems like from the two weeks ago, I was just full of fire and fury and saying, God, he should be convicted. And I would do that. And then the next week I went through this, what I thought was rational analysis and said, well, no, actually, I wouldn't vote to convict him if I were in the senator's position. And now I I, I don't know. I, I, I heard what Romney said and I thought about that. And, and it's this is this is really one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to come to. And I, I didn't even have to decide anything. It's like there are any stakes for me. I'm just the guy, right? But <laughs> here's my problem, guys. And maybe you can help me out with this. I'm hoping you can. I'm torn between the severity of the offense. And this is an offense I have no doubt was committed. You know, a, a while ago, Ken and I just privately talked about my earlier concerns that the evidentiary standard hadn't been met. I, I don't have that concern anymore. But there's the severity of the of the very real offense that I weigh against the severity of the very anti-democratic remedy, because, of course, it's not just removing the president from office. It's uh, it's ensuring that or, or saying that the president is not allowed to hold any federal office again. That's that's a big deal. And, and that's the source of my conflict. So, you know, I'm kind of in a sort of Lamar Alexanderish sort of place here i guess and uh that's that's really what's giving me a lot of a lot of trouble 
So you see, for me, it's in, I don't think I had quite the same moral conundrum you did there, Mike. What I find interesting about this is how, for me, it's emblematic of the political parties just not being consistent. And I think that's probably what bothered me most of all, because here's Romney. And I, I think by looking at him, we actually get a pretty good assessment of how the landscape, the political landscape has shifted in the Trump and now in the post-Trump, post-impeachment era. There we go. There's a, there's a term that's going to take off. Um, <laughs> and, and effectively, it's this. When Romney ran for office, he gets lamb blasted from the left because he's a Cold War thinker, because he's worried about Russia, because... <laughs> yeah. Uh, things that at the time seemingly were were quaint, and so now he I mean, he's the same Romney, he's the same guy, uh, and, and he's still worried about those things, and he's worried about them in the context of this president, and he gets disinvited from uh, the CPAC. So the right has shifted in its position, and so I guess for me, what kind of just bothers me about the process, and I do give some Romney for this going down in history as being the the first to switch over, is it just shows how radically. The, the political parties have just have just melted their positions. And I think that gives me the, the greatest discomfort in the, in the wake of impeachment. I, I, I just got to say, Trey, uh, it seems kind of like a false equivalency to me. I mean, I, I feel you can make that argument to a certain extent. But what almost all the Republicans have done, how they have basically shut their eyes to what seems to me from any reasonable person's standpoint, the clear and serious criminality of Donald Trump and his administration is is staggering to me and far outweighs, I think, anything that Adam Schiff, Nancy Pelosi or anyone else. And so I guess I'm struggling to understand how I, I get how some Republicans could maybe come to the conclusion that this serious crime is not as serious as the remedy, you know, but. How do so many members of your party just say, ah, you know, nothing to see here. Just let's move on. Oh, well, well I, I'm arguing explicitly that I think that they have fundamentally shifted their positions in a way that is morally repugnant. That's oh. my point. I think <laughs> Romney has been I think Romney is the consistent one here and the party has shifted around him. In other words, I think that those who would have uh, who, who would have should have were right when he was running for president. Uh, pointing out that his positions in a positive way have completely shifted. And so, I mean, that I don't disagree with you in, in no way. Am I attempting to indicate by saying that that I think that that is an indication that um, uh, Democrats in this case are wrong? Uh, rather, what I'm saying is, is that, th that we're just seeing the party fundamentally transform what it is. Yeah, Trey, if I could, I think maybe there was a subtext in what you were saying that if the Democrats thought um, Romney was such a bad person in uh, 2012 and couldn't be voted for, you know, then then there's some hypocrisy perhaps in extolling him now. But I'm not even sure that's true because I I don't think the I don't think the the rap on Romney in in 2012 was that he was an unethical person. I think it was more just that he was, uh, um, you know, a, a very rich, rich man who was out of touch with. Um, yeah, and in part the, of the way he was out of touch people. was, you know, he had these wild, weird Cold War era problems worrying about the future of uh, security with places like the like Russia, which is he was right. right. And uh, he was right. Right. 
But but I'm saying I don't think Democrats ever painted him as not being a person of integrity. So I think Democrats being willing to you know really extol him as a as a person of an integrity today. I don't I don't think that's a hundred eighty degree shift from what they're because I don't think that was the criticism of him back then. You know I don't. I don't think they ever said he's not a person of integrity. I think they just said he had bad ideas. And now maybe they've come around some to his ideas about Russia. For <laughs> yeah, sure. no, I, but, I, but I, course, I think that's, yeah, that's been yeah. the shift on their part is I think they have recognized he was right. I think it's just unfortunate that, you know, they're going to do it in a moment when now it, it effectively doesn't matter. But I mean, the larger problem here, of course, and I think that's what you're pointing out, Mike, is is effectively that. Republicans are not willing to have an open and honest process about this. I, I mean, it as I was watching it happen in the Senate, it it just baffled my mind that we were not going to have witnesses. I, I don't. Yeah. I I mean, again, if you want to vote to not convict, we can have a complicated conversation about you know whether or not we've met that evidentiary standard. But how do you determine what it is? And, and as they were sitting there. And uh, and and, and the the defense's the the defense's argument was effectively, look, if you open up witnesses, we're going to make this go on forever. We're going to make you suffer. And that's just a stagger. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't an attempt to hide that claim. That was exactly the claim. Right. We're going to call this person and this person and this person and this person. And you all are going to sit here and listen to it. That was effectively their argument. And that that's that part baffles me. Yeah, well, I, 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 I did not like a trial without witnesses, and there's never been an impeachment trial without witnesses. And, you know, even though there have only been a few presidential impeachments, there have been about about 20 judicial impeachments. So there's a fair amount of experience with impeachment trials in the Senate. And this is completely un- unprecedented and improper. The, the one thing I thought was interesting was Lamar Alexander kind of uniquely among the Republicans, when he was explaining his vote against having witnesses, he said there's no need for witnesses because the Democrats have already com- completely proved all the factual aspects of their case. And therefore, th- there's nothing that witnesses would add to that because Trump's already been proven guilty on the facts. And, and it's merely up to the Senate to decide whether that renders um, uh, removable or not. I-, I could respect that position, although I still think there ought to be witnesses. Yeah. Well, I, th- I, I mean, think the fundamental that- problem. I'm so sorry, Mike, continue. No, I was going to say that that's essentially my position at the Point. So I, I, I respect that position. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing that fundamentally frustrates me is the idea that we now have this precedent that suggests that the House is not the grand jury, but rather both the grand jury and the trial. And, and, and I'm not really sure what the Senate assumes its role in that place is to be. I mean, historically speaking, Clearly, the House is intended to be a grand jury, not to be the place where you prove charges. You're, you're bringing charges on enough evidence to suggest that there's there, there, more um, careful investigation is needed. And, and I think effectively, the Senate wrote out a big uh, bit of power. And so one of the questions I had for both of you, I mean, do you think moving forward, the Senate has effectively once again, and this is a trajectory we've talked about in the show before, handed future president's additional power because they've they've basically absconded their role and set a new precedent. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to depend on whether the um, Senate is is in the same political party as the president as it did this time. But yeah, if they if they are, um, I I think there's there is a precedent here now that um, any 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 Senate that's inclined not to um, remove the president um, is probably going to have a very minimal proceeding like this. 
Yeah, I I agree. I mean, it's just part of a larger trend where we've seen for a long time now that this notion that there would be institutional rivalries that would that would check the executive. I think that's sort of gone away when you have a, a branch or an entire or part of a branch that's of the same party. That party loyalty clearly takes precedence over any sort of prerogatives or powers of the institution. Well, then, I mean, I guess, man, we're once again in agreement on something. I was hoping that we'd have. (laughs) Let me ask you, Trey. Let me ask you, Trey. If you you were going to be voting on this, because, of course, Romney only voted uh, to convict on one charge, and that was the uh, abuse of power and not obstruction of Congress. Now, I'm I'm curious how you would have voted on those two things. Were you in his position or, you know? So uh, here is, I mean, I, I guess there's kind of, there's two votes I'd have to answer your question on. One is, I suppose if I was in the Senate, I would have voted for witnesses and I would have been the tipping vote. And so, <laughs> uh, and, and I think the part of the the conundrum that I find myself in is, is that to really answer that question fully, I think there needed to be additional witnesses. Now, if what appears to be the case, what Bolton is saying off the record and through a book, that's coming out, maybe, you know, uh, then that would influence how I would have voted. Had they not allowed witnesses to go forward, I think I probably would have voted like Romney on one and not the other, simply to make a protest vote. Uh, but I, th- I think I would have followed his example pretty closely. Had I, In other words, if we just swapped shoes, uh, I think he did the right thing. Uh, not because he couldn't have voted yes on both, but because I think in part, He's saying, hey, I just I don't know because we didn't have a trial. And I think that's fair. You see, that's where and Ken, I, I'm yeah. sure you, this this resonates with you for our earlier conversation about the evidence. It's just it's hard for me. And this is where I agree with Alexander again. It's hard for me to understand what Bolton really could have added. I mean, if at this point with all the testimony and all the documentary evidence it's not clear to anyone who's paying attention that President Trump engaged in a, a, a plan, a plot, a scheme, whatever you want to call it, to abuse his power in, one, in, a, in a very serious way. I, I, I don't understand what evidence they're looking at, I guess. And, and Ken, that was the point you made to me, I don't know, yeah. a couple of months ago. Yeah. And I mean, I think the one thing that Bolton could have added, but I don't think this would be dispositive for almost anybody, is that... Um, all the other testimony you heard were from people who weren't um, directly the, the the office holders themselves who were engaging in the conduct. Now, Mulvaney, although he didn't testify, he gave a press conference where he he is one of the people he blocked the money and he admitted it. Um, that wasn't under oath, but it was it was in a press conference. But Bolton also would have been someone in a position to be a player in all these events. The people who did testify in the House were mostly people who were witnesses to these events rather than players in these events. So some people might have thought it's important to hear straight from the horse's mouth. And Bolton is the horse's mouth. But but I feel it was sufficient to hear from all the witnesses. I don't think it needed to be um, straight from one of the players. Yeah. And that's 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 where I agree with you. Absolutely, though, even though our votes would have been would have been very different because I in that balance, I'm sure you agree with me that the the penalty is very severe. But you feel that the offense is so grave that it merits the penalty. And I'm incredibly on the fence about that. Well, let me add, if I can, that uh, it's not just about what the offense is. It about it's about what it signifies about whether this person is is fit to remain in office or whether they will keep doing it if they remain in office. And I think that was proved. So 
So I'd, I'd sort of partly go by what the offense is, but I'd also partly go by what the offense signifies about what to expect if this person gets to stay in office. Uh, yeah, that's not a bad point. I guess, you know, and, and in trying to work through my conflict, I feel like if I am undecided, then I should give the benefit of the doubt to the, the will of the people, even though I think they, they screwed it up. I don't I don't agree <laughs> with their will in 2016, but uh, uh, that's that's kind of why I fell where I did. And after going back and forth a little bit on that. Well, maybe they just need to bring you into the Rousseau, Rousseauian true will. And then oh, you. <laughs> God, <no. laughs> well, I do want to add something that has actually happened today on impeachment. And I think it really uh, resonates with what you two are having a minor disagreement about. And that is did either of you see that Vinman was escorted from the White House today uh, after President Donald Trump? Uh, suggested that there is going to be retribution outright uh, to members of the press. Uh, And so he and, as a matter of fact, his brother have been removed today. Uh, It just happened about uh, 45 minutes ago. So does this have any bearing on what you guys are talking about? Because one of the things you were saying there, Ken, was, or I'm sorry, uh, Mike was, well, would he do it again? Is it a pattern of behavior? Well, is this would does this fall into that pattern of behavior? Or is this just a president who's removing guys from his staff? That's something we've been talking about in my presidency class. I mean, I think this is an example of what I was talking about. I think it's it's even though I would acknowledge that the anyone on the national security uh, uh, on the national security council serves at the pleasure of the president and can be removed at the pleasure of the president. I, I think it's completely obvious here that um, Vinman is being humiliated to the maximum extent possible. He was literally escorted out by security, you know, not not simply just told, well, the, the president um, doesn't want you on his staff anymore, um, literally escorted out by security solely because he responded to a congressional subpoena and testified truthfully. Now, I, I think that's a, a, an outrageous abuse of power, but I think it's, it's consistent um, with my idea that Trump is going to keep abusing power. Mike, what do you think I, about that? I, I, I disagree. I mean, in, in a sense, I I certainly agree with Ken that the that, you know, all of those people serve at the pleasure of the president. And so while I feel that how he went about doing what he did is incorrect, I don't feel it's a I, I don't feel it's an abuse of power. I feel it's petty and in and in horrific taste and entirely in keeping with what we know about Donald Trump as a person. But I don't think it's actually an abuse of power because he has the power to do this. And I think it's absolutely reasonable that he would have lost the trust of, uh, you know, in, in Vinman. And so it makes sense as a as a policy move. But now, does this kind of effectively, because this goes back to the question I asked both of you a minute ago, if if responding to uh, subpoenas uh, puts you in political jeopardy permanently, doesn't this once again just simply consolidate additional power in the hands of the president, the presidency, regardless of who's, who's holding the office? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, 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 the Trump is determined to obstruct Congress. He's improperly telling everybody who works for him, don't respond to lawful subpoenas, don't respond to lawful document requests. That's impro- those are improper abuses of, of power, those instructions. And then he's saying if, if, if anybody doesn't, doesn't, won't be an accomplice, 
um, in, in that illegality, then he's going to get rid of them because they don't have his confidence anymore. I, I, I think that's pretty open and shut. Yeah, I, and I agree with you on the first part of that. Certainly telling people to uh, to uh, ignore a lawful request to testify, that is, in my view, an abuse of power, which is, you know, I think it's to me, it's unquestionable that he was guilty on of doing both of those things he was charged with, uh, not just uh, abuse of power, but also obstructing Congress. And of course, it's kind of they, they kind of meld together in a way. So now I know that we're going to need to kind of wrap this particular topic up, but here I think is maybe the down and dirty last question that we need to consider is, does any of this matter in 2020 in electoral terms? Mike, you first. Well, I mean, you know, the president's job approval is uh, about as high as it's ever been in his presidency, although it's still like mid 40s. So it doesn't surprise me in the sense that you would expect him to get a little bit of a bump right after with all the news and so forth. But I don't see it making a huge difference really either way. So I, I think I think, no, not so much in the longer term. Yeah, I, I agree. Exactly. And I even think um, even the little bump in the polls, besides besides, I think, being temporary and ephemeral, like like Mike was saying, um, I'm, I'm not even sure I think it's it's real. I mean, you see it in the numbers. But what you also see in the numbers, and I think this is some, some somewhat documented phenomenon in the past as well, is that when one side gets a little bit more despondent and another side gets a little more energized, that actually affects um, response rates to who's willing to answer polls. Yeah. So that you may you may just be a little bit more um, Republicans willing to answer polls now, and so that affects what the polls look like also. So what do you think, Trey? I honestly don't think this is going to. If let me let me put it. I think this will ultimately help Trump on the path to what I am seeing as an increasing likelihood for a Trump 2020 victory. Mm, Okay, because you're I mean, the betting markets actually agree with you. They have Donald Trump as a as a favorite. But that doesn't surprise me, given how fractured the Democratic field is right now. I think that's going to that's going to change. But but so so you you think this will I I don't think it will help him at all. In fact, I will I think that there's very likely that we will get a Democratic president, uh, assuming Bernie Sanders isn't the nominee. And if he is, that's a whole different story. But we'll talk about that. Well, I'm sure. Why don't some hear, other why don't, I know we're going to shift to Iowa and then talking about that and presidential chances. But before we do that, uh, Mike, why don't you tell us about our sponsor? Yeah, our sponsor today is Empower. And, you know, I could use more money and I bet you could, too. So let Empower help you save a bunch of money and make money management the easiest thing you do all day. All you do is put in your weekly savings target, then every day Empower studies your income and spending and automatically moves the right amount of money into your savings account, where obviously you're going to be less likely to spend it. They've also got budgeting for people who hate budgeting, and that's definitely me. They've got great reports that have actionable spending insights, smart spending recommendations tailored especially for you. They can even negotiate on your behalf to lower your bills. They also give you personalized human coaching for any financial questions you might have and high interest FDIC insured checking with no minimums. So if you want to save big this year, download Empower. That's E-M-P-O-W-E-R in the App Store or Play Store. I downloaded it and so have 650,000 other people, give or take. And Politics Guys listeners, you get $5 when you use offer code politics guys and reach your savings goal so just visit empower.me slash politics guys for more details 
That sounds like a lot of fun. Now all they need to do is help me figure out how to save for this $1,000 multi-sport watch that I've been looking for, and (laughs) power will be mine, too. Uh, (laughs) No, that actually sounds pretty cool. Uh, So moving away from Empower and back to the Iowa caucuses, which I think is going to lead us to chatting a little bit about uh, who's going to win, maybe who's going to win. This is going to take us a minute, I think, because it was kind of even hard thinking about how to phrase this story. The Iowa caucus is weird for a lot of reasons. For one reason, it's not a primary. And so the way this works, I think, can be weird to a lot of the country. What happens in the Iowa caucus is that local party members express their support um, by gathering around in a large room, and you actually move to different parts of the room to indicate your support for different candidates. Anybody, or I should say any candidate, who doesn't receive 15% of the vote is eliminated, and those individuals can then have a chance to move in the room and vote again. Now, traditionally, what has happened is is at that point, those votes are recorded and transmitted by phone through an automated system for a final tally. Now, this year, though, there were two major changes. One was there was a new app that was designed to collect the data instead of phoning it in. And two, on top of that new app, there was going to be some additional data points collected. uh, And those were now, in addition to the final outcome, it'd be the initial support for each candidate. And then the second choice for those who realigned and also the final delegates of who won. And all of this was supposed to go through the app. Now, this has led to numerous problems. Uh, The New York Times was the first to kind of really delve into this, but everybody realized something was going on when the when the results aren't coming in. Uh, It's to note that one, this app has all kinds of questions surrounding it. Cybersecurity experts didn't have a chance to look at it. As a matter of fact, not even my cybersecurity uh, OC kids had a chance to look at it. Just want to throw that out there. Um, They are for hire if anybody wants it. I mean, I'm just looking at you, (laughs) Iowa, Uh, you know, (laughs) but they they didn't even test it. Now, additionally, and this is even worse, is that just like some of my students, state chairs did the worst thing ever. They waited until the last moment and didn't download the app. As a matter of fact, none of them had even been trained in its uh, use in advance. Now, additionally, what came out uh, post the caucus is not only were there app errors, but there appears to be, although the DNC uh, in Iowa is denying, or excuse me, the Democratic Party in Iowa is denying it is that there were, in fact, errors in the very count themselves. Not systematic, but errors in the count. So all the way around, things are not looking particularly good, gentlemen, for Iowa. And in in all honesty, I mean, could this finally be us being done with the Iowa caucus being the first test for for primaries? Or is this just a bump in the road? I mean, obviously, we have the questions of the technology. We have the questions of this change. And we have the question of, well, what, is, what does any of this even mean when it comes to, do we have a winner in the candidates? i got to say, Trey, it means that Iowa doesn't go first anymore. I'm going to count it as a win. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll second that motion. You know, yeah, I mean, I, go ahead, Ken. Oh, I was just saying, you know, I, I, I have a strange sentimental attachment to the caucus process I, because I think it does have some benefits, but I'm going to agree with probably both you guys that by now the detriments outweigh the benefits. But I, I think the one benefit that's going to get it lost, a little bit of the baby that's going to go with the bathwater is I think it's nice that there's a juncture early in the process where the influence of money is very much diminished, right? Because in Iowa, you've got the ability for all the candidates to go there, to, to spend some time there, 
to meet a relatively small number of voters. And that completely, I think, countervails against the advantages that would accrue normally to whoever can pay for the most media. And so I think that was a good thing about caucuses. But ultimately, they are very undemocratic, unworkable. And you you got to really ask, you know, is Iowa too unrepresentative? And, and, and having just caucus goers who are the most active voters, are they unrepresentative of the more mainstream voters? And it, there are a lot of problems there. And I think it probably should go and will go. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. You know, you can still take some of those positives. I think that you're absolutely right about it being good to have a, a setting that's small enough where everyone can compete, if not equally, at least on the more equal footing. But of course, that doesn't have to be Iowa, right? There are a number of other states that might fit that bill and would be at least a bit more diverse, if nothing else, at least geographically. So what about, and this is where I think probably the two of you are going to have a bigger uh, uh, dog in the fight. So what do you think about the process for the changes that occurred in Iowa? So obviously we all kind of agree that there's problematics, but this is the way it works. This is what happened. Um, but we have the app and we have these reporting issues. What does that mean in for 2020 where we can't go back and change it? I don't think it means much at all. It's just, you know, it's the big thing that's happening right now. But as soon as we have the vote in New Hampshire, it's pretty much gone. And, and you know, in the larger scheme of things, as you know, as you guys know, Iowa is not that big of a deal, at least from a sheer delegate point of view. It's 41 out of 1,990 that you need. And so it's being, I'll say over, not saying it's not a bad thing, but it's being overplayed because it's what's happening right now. And it's the first contest, but I, I don't really see it being as, as big of a deal as a lot of other people do. Ken, yeah, I, I think I, I mostly agree. I, I think it can be a big deal only in a few small ways. It's, it is going to help uh, Buttigieg now with fundraising and with establishing himself as a more major candidate that he did so well there. I think, um, you know, I think other candidates like, like Yang, who, you know, didn't really do much there, you know, it's, it's already starting to feel like the end of the road for them. Um, and I do, I do think that if, if, if Biden doesn't bounce back quickly, um, it's going to deal him a blow. I, I mean, if he bounces back in New Hampshire, then Iowa is not going to matter. But if Biden does poorly in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, it's going to hobble him a little bit, I think. Well, and this, and this is know, interesting. Was, oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry, finish, Mike. Finish. Now, I was going to say, what I thought was interesting is that, you know, both Biden and Warren put a lot into Iowa. They organized there early and very well, and they were head and shoulders above everyone else, especially early on. And we saw that we saw that paying off for Buttigieg, but we didn't see it paying off for Warren. And I think that's well, that gets to some other issues where I think Warren just doesn't feel as authentic because I don't think she is as authentic necessarily as as Buttigieg. Not saying that that's necessarily a, a, a primary factor, but it certainly matters to a lot of voters, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, we have Buttigieg coming in with twenty six point two percent, Sanders with twenty six point one percent. Uh, we, you know, Warren and Biden are both just barely scraping in at 18 and 15.8. And if you're taking a look at the polls, I don't know if you guys have done this, but as we look at the polls right now, New Hampshire, it's uh, Sanders is out front with Buttigieg in second in the polls. Uh, and and Warren and, and Biden don't look like they may compete as well in New Hampshire either. So this is, leads to something that you were talking about a minute ago. You were asking me about Trump, and then you were saying, well, we're not going to have Trump unless there's a, a Sanders. You know, Sanders is not the candidate. Are you feeling nervous, Mike? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not 
Not so much. It's a long race and people get all excited and and jump on various bandwagons and so forth. And I I take sort of a a longer view. I still think it's Joe Biden's race to lose. And well, I've been saying for a long time now that we'll know a lot more, certainly after South Carolina and seeing if if Buttigieg can take uh, can, can translate any of his support in Iowa and probably New Hampshire down to a very different electorate there. And I think that's going to be a big problem. But really, I think we're going to be in a lot. I'll be either a lot more or a lot less nervous after Super Tuesday when we'll know so much more than we know now. What do you think, Ken? Yeah, you know, Mike's saying it's Biden's to lose. And I guess I agree with that. But I do think he's going to lose it. I've I've always thought that I I just think that the the, he's not up to the um, the challenges of really being on the road and retail campaigning. He makes a lot of gaffes. And another thing about Iowa that was unique this time out is that all of the sitting senators were really tied up in Washington because of the impeachment. So that gave a big advantage to Biden and to Buttigieg because they could be there the whole time in Iowa and none of the other leading contenders could. Um, and Buttigieg obviously did capitalize on that. And I, I, you know, Biden's failure to do that when he really had the field more to himself than he should have uh, does seem a little bit like a, it signifies something Although it could just be a blip, you know, I I, I certainly wouldn't write him off at, at this point. But I I've never really thought he could go the distance. And so, okay, that 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 is not what I was expecting either. You guys to say, to be honest. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, when you look at the polls right now, I mean, you're doing the state by state matchups. Biden is just fading, just fading in these uh, these early goes. Uh, and I thought, you know, in full disclosure, I, I was not as convinced as you were, Ken. And, you know, we talked about that. I didn't think that Biden was going to fade quite this quickly. And you're right. I mean, they were we have senators in uh, Washington that pulls them away. But well, then how do you explain Sanders tying uh, Buttigieg if he I mean, he's in the same boat as Warren? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do think Sanders had a few structural advantages that the others didn't have. The other senators didn't have that is um, he had uh, Alexandria, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Michael Moore making all of his appearances for him. And I don't know that the other candidates who missed appearances had anybody as charismatic as that showing up at all of the scheduled events that they already had scheduled and that they had to miss. And I think for Sanders voters or for potential Sanders voters, there was a lot of excitement um, going in Iowa, going to you know some small town event where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Michael Moore are there. They could put on a pretty big show. They had a lot of uh, big rock stars playing at those events and things like that. Um, so I, th- I think Sanders had a better um, backup team in terms of filling in and making those appearances than the other senators. I also I also think that um, the Iowa caucus structure, which does bring out, you know, it weights the views of activists much more than it weights the votes of ordinary voters. Um, that that does play to Sanders's advantages, I think. So on two points, I have response. One is, is so you don't think that Warren's dog was a, an effective replacement at the two campaign stops? Uh, <laughs> I was, I, anyway, sorry. That was, it was true. It really happened. The other one is, and this is a completely unrepresentative sample, uh, but in the Senate galley, I had tons of people cycling through me. And at every moment that I could whisper and not have a gun pointed at my head, um, I, I, was, I would ask people. and. Every single person who I had a conversation with all said, in my heart of hearts, the one that I want is Buttigieg. And I found that really interesting. I, that was not what I was expecting either. 
So you had these, again, admittedly, this is a weird uh, makeup because we have people who were driving from the New England area in. So it's a very kind of limited geographic space for the people who were, who were also there um, because you're not going to fly like that unless you have a ticket. So, but all of them, there was not a single person that I talked to that uh, put their money on anybody else, even though they're in the Senate looking at the other senators. Um, I don't know that. that anyway. um, I, I'm going to make two. I'm going to make two predictions here, Trey, Do and it. you and Ken can hold me to them. Number one, uh, no one is going to get the the uh, pledged delegates they need to win on the first ballot. And number two, Joe Biden will be the nominee. <laughs> oh wow! I love it. I don't mess prediction. around, man. No. <laughs> so we've got. Uh, see, I feel like we're going to need to have a Ken versus Mike uh, after the election debate. You know, <laughs> who was right and who? Well, actually, I, let me ask you guys a question because this is something I've been wondering, and I don't, I don't have an answer. Um, it seems like you know Bloomberg is in now, and people are only just starting to pay him a little bit of attention. It seems to me like Bloomberg is going for the voters. The mainly the same voters that Biden or that Buttigieg are going for, that they're all going for the cent- center wing of the party. Maybe maybe Buttigieg is kind of pivoting a little bit between the center wing and a little bit between the, the more left wing. But but basically, those guys are going for the center. Do you think by do you think Bloomberg's going to get any traction? And is he going to have if, if so, who, who's who's he going to take the votes away from? See, what I think is going to happen. I'm, I'm glad you brought brought him up, Ken, because what I think is going to happen is that he's not going to get quite enough traction. And so that's going to end up going in support of uh, in support of Biden, because it seems to me pretty clear that from the beginning, Michael Bloomberg knew that he had a outside at best chance of winning. And his main thing wasn't so much winning, though. Hey, that would be nice. But uh, I don't know if you're the 15th richest person in the world. Does it really matter if you're president or not? You're probably more powerful in some ways. But, <laughs> I, you know, I think that his goal all along has been to make sure that Donald Trump loses. And, and so I think he's going to direct his uh, direct his massive funds to whoever he thinks is going to be most likely to make that happen. And of course, he'd like that to be Mike Bloomberg. When he finds out that it's not, I think he's going to conclude that it's uh, that it's Joe Biden. And that's going to give Biden a big bump. And like I said, he'll end up being and it's a weird uh, disconnect we currently have when you're looking at the national polling data for Democrats. You know, Bloomberg does really well. I mean, he's polling at nearly 11 percent. But when you take a look at the state by state breakdown, you know, he's not really cracking the top three. Uh, and so right now, I mean, you're right. There's kind of a there's a disconnect between national polls and state polls. And, and in my opinion, you take a look at the state polls. Well, and that'll change, too, because as we get closer to Super Tuesday, we're going to start to see a lot more polling in those states. And I think that Bloomberg is going to pop up a lot higher. And so that's going to that gap is going to close a little bit. But I don't think it's going to close enough. And I think he'll end up making the strategic calculation at some point that he's not going to be the nominee. And then his uh, massive, like I said, his massive resources are really going to help out whoever I think he decides to uh, support. And I think that's going to end up being Biden. Well, I think it's probably time for us to turn our attention to our third story, which is that this week, Attorney General Barr issued some new rules uh, for politically sensitive investigations, as NPR puts it. Uh, What happened is this is Barr outlined some new policies in a three page memo. uh, And what it basically says is effectively that Barr's restrictions 
would change the way that investigations into candidates would operate. And specifically, it appears that the attorney general is going to kind of have the final say uh, on things that are coming from any kind of investigation. Uh, What do you guys think about this shift? I mean, obviously, the the kind of the scuttle here is, is that it's coming in the wake of the IG report. But it also feels a little bit maybe like part of the we're not going to investigate candidates anymore, or at least we're going to make that bar high enough that that's not going to happen easily. Ever since I heard this, I got to say, I've been waiting to hear Ken's take on this. So, Ken, (laughs) you should definitely start it off. And Michael, I actually told you my take already, but now it tells a trait as well. So, um, no, I I think it's it's the opposite. It's to weaponize and politicize the Justice Department so that only Democrats can be investigated for partisan political purposes. And Republicans can never be investigated for partisan political purposes as long as Barr is attorney general. I think it's as simple as that. And that it's actually codifying the exact conduct that the Republicans have been screaming about that where they say the the FBI and the Justice Department launched an investigation against uh, uh, Trump and people around Trump during the campaign because they were partisan and because they wanted to interfere with Trump's candidacy. Bar- Barr is saying, that's what I'm going to do now. That's what I'm going to do to Democrats. And that was, will not be done to Republicans. And that, that's that's really what the new rules signify. The last thing I could say, and I know I'm, I'm taking up a lot of time here, but almost the same day that he announced these rules, I, I'm sure that the Justice Department has been advising the Treasury Department. You know, there were two different congressional subpoenas. There's the one that people have known about for a year where the House Ways and Means Committee has been trying to see uh, Donald Trump's tax returns. And then there's a more recent one where the Senate Judiciary Committee asked to see Hunter Biden's uh, tax returns under exactly the same statute. And, um, uh, you know, the bar, I'm sure, told the Treasury Department the same day he announced these rules, yeah, you got to give him Hunter Biden's tax returns and, you know, still don't give him Donald Trump's tax returns. And and I think that's sort of the 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 way this rule is supposed to work. What do you think? That was my take. And yeah, that was exactly my take, although, you know, Ken obviously is able to express it far better. And so uh, I was wondering, Trey, how you would respond to that, actually. You know, I'm going to be honest. I I don't often take the side of the Trump administration, but I think there if if it wasn't Barr who was doing this, I don't think that uh, either of you would be as likely to read uh, at least the bits of the memo that I can get my hands on uh, in that light that you're that you're pointing out. I think in large part, this is part of the problem of what had happened during the uh, Barack Obama administration, which is, well, what do we do? I mean, I mean, I think they were doing the best they were attempting to do. What do you do with that? Who Who's the ultimate arbiter of deciding we're going to have a candidate or not have a candidate? I think if it wasn't Barr, I think that most of us would be a little bit we're okay with it. Now, of course, maybe I'm talking myself out of it in the sense that if you, if you think that if a rule wouldn't be applicable across the board to any person, would you want that rule? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think right now, and Ken, I, I'm hoping you can speak to this, but but as it stands now, there are certain standards that the that the career employees make at in terms of the termination, as well as some some of their political superiors, and it's based on their judgment in those standards, and not the political sign off of the president's top appointee in the in the department. 
Yeah, and I mean, I agree with that entirely. And in terms of what Trey said, I, I agree with half of what Trey said. So it, I think it's true that I, I wouldn't be as suspicious if it wasn't Barr that was putting out this memo. I, I think that's exactly right. But 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 yet it is Barr that's putting out this memo. And I think that that has to be taken account of um, because otherwise um, the, 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 pre, the status quo before this memo already would have required some uh, Senate appointed, politically appointed uh, high ranking official in the Justice Department to sign off on these things. It, it just wouldn't have been the attorney general. And now that we have a highly partisan attorney general who's trying to weaponize the Justice Department as an adjunct of the Republican Party in all kinds of ways, you know, and then he puts out this order, um, I think it has to be read in, in, in that context. Yeah. I think it's an important to point out that the higher up you go in the appointments, the more political they become in almost any department. And so you can find a lot of assistants and lower level still political appointees who aren't nearly as uh, intent on carrying water for the president, whatever his party may be, than the top appointee in any department is. I mean, I hear what you guys are saying, but I think part of the problem is, is that you're kind of hoping that the executive branch is going to check the executive branch uh, and that by making this lower down, that somehow these kinds of political considerations aren't going to be happening. And I just don't buy that theory of the presidency that we want to have this massive EOP executive office of the president that's somehow sitting across from the president attempting to fix the president. I mean, so effectively, I guess what I'm saying is, is if you if if you don't like the way that the pre, the presidency is operating, then you either a have a problem with the scope and the expansion of the presidency, which I do, uh, or you have a problem with the person who's holding it. And I don't think it's right to suggest that you you ought to have uh, particular frameworks to stop the president from pulling the levers that has been handed to him in the EOP. Oh, it sounds to me like, Trey, that like you're saying that, well, there, there are problems with the system the way it is. So let's make it worse. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, I agree with you in some extent to me. What I really think we should do is what 43 of the 50 states had, have done and have an elected attorney general, because I, I think you're right in terms of the inherent politi politi politicization of this. And so I would love to see politics, well, not taken out of, but removed at least by, you know, to a certain extent by having an independent elected attorney general. And we have seen in a number of states how that has checked uh, the power of governors. And I'm thinking, uh, and, and uh, you'll appreciate this, Ken, certainly our own uh, state of, you know, in Kentucky where we yeah. work, we've certainly seen that. Now, obviously, that that's a big change and it would require a constitutional amendment, but that is an amendment I would totally get behind. I agree with yeah, you. Actually, I agree yeah, with you 100 percent. Trey, Trey and I have actually talked about this on prior episodes, and we both agree <laughs> with that, too. And uh, I mean, I think that the another benefit of that um, is that it also breaks up this theory of the unitary executive. Right. Yes. So right now Amen. we have a constitutional theory that all of the power is vested in the in the president and, and delegates down. And and so everybody in the administration has to at some level be a, an agent of the president. I think that's a terrible theory of the executive branch. It, it, it is more or less the theory that is, is in our Constitution. But if we had a constitutional amendment that changed that, I think that would only be for the better. And the um, the example of changing it so that we would elect attorneys general. And I think we should elect them at the midterm elections, not at the same election as the president. Yeah. So that, pe so that people can decide halfway through a president's term whether they'd like to elect a different attorney general who would start investigating that president. Um, I think that would be a, a great improvement to our Constitution. I deeply agree so with the idea that we, we're that all we in need agreement. To, yeah, we're, but here's <laughs> yeah. where... Here's where I disagree with you a little bit, Ken. 
I actually, I don't think that's part of our constitutional framework. I think that has been the slow accumulation of precedents, and we have allowed our president to rest on precedents over what I think actually was its intended purposes. But, okay, that, that's maybe a, a question for a, an upper-level grad class. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I find your theory more, more attractive um, than the framers' theory, I think. But I, I do think the framers in the Constitution, in Article 2, they, they, it does say the executive power of the United States is vested in one president of the United States. Well, it says the power they, they is vested, have... but they, they then go on to list in Article 2 a, a specific set of powers, which means that they can't mean what the unitary theorists argue, which is that all executive powers were intended. Otherwise, why do you list them? Right. Well, in other words, all the powers that the executive has are, are vested in one president, um, I think is what they came up with. And they, they did actually debate the idea of an executive triumvirate and uh, at the yes. Constitutional Convention. And, and uh, George Washington was opposed because the, the Roman triumvirates had usually wound up with one living triumvir and two dead triumvirs. <laughs> <laughs> well, but see, I'll, I'll take another issue. I mean, even there, think in, I believe it's Federalist 72, although later they're going to disagree with themselves, argues explicitly what we were talking about earlier that presidents will not have the power to, without the approval of the Senate, to remove uh, officials. Now, of course, that goes by the wayside as a result of precedent. Uh, but, I mean, if you're, if you're going to take the, the words of the guys who are writing the uh, Federalist Papers uh, at face value, clearly they weren't intending even all of those powers, to, I mean, the ability just to remove somebody to be the, solely the president's. You know, I, I think sometimes these debates that a lot of people focus a lot on what the framers intended. And I feel like sometimes that's, that can be a useful debate, but maybe not the best debate to have because their political universe was in a lot of respects, very different. And so regardless of what the framers may have intended or thought or wanted to see happen, the world as we see it in 2020 politically is, you know, there are some new realities, I think, that require changes to institutional arrangements that might have made a whole lot of sense in the 18th, 19th, or even 20th centuries. Yeah, and I think we yeah, all I agree, agree on that yeah. change. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Continue, Ken. Yeah. 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 I was just going to say, that's why, even though, and I agree with Mike, maybe it's a digression, but even though I'm a little more sympathetic to the idea that the framers wanted a unitary executive, I don't think that we benefit from a unitary executive. So I definitely would like to see that change. So we disagree about we the means. You just need someone to write it up, I yeah. guess, right? And introduce it. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, who knows? Well, I think the last thing that we're going to want to talk about as we uh, get near to the end of the show is the State of the Union Address. And never have I felt more like we're going to be talking about reality TV than I am now for the last uh, issue. Uh, so <clears throat> we have a big moment, I think two kind of big moments, but really... Are they big or are they just media big? And I think that maybe that's something we can even talk about. Uh, but we have Donald Trump not shaking uh, Nancy Pelosi's hand. And then we have Nancy Pelosi uh, very now, I think, famously and meme-inducingly uh, ripping up the president's speech. As a matter of fact, after ripping up the speech, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, would say in a private meeting with Democrats on Wednesday uh, that she was happy that she did it. And as a matter of fact, she uh, felt, quote, liberated. Uh, end quote, after deliberately delivering it up. She said, quote, he shredded the truth, so I shredded his speech, end quote. Uh, Pelosi went on to tell uh, House Democrats that she thought that was the right thing to do at the time. Uh, so we have, it's the handshake versus the speech rip-up versus, I don't know, some, uh, uh, 
Rush Limbaugh getting a, <laughs> a Medal of Honor. What do you guys think about the State of the Union address? And let's start before we get to the content of the address with just what I think is what's going to be most people's takeaway is these kind of two image moments, the failed handshake and the, the ripping up of the address. Well, yep. I, no, go ahead, go ahead, Ken. You go, I was going to say, you know, I, this, is, this is why sometimes I just want to go somewhere out of some desert island and not follow <laughs> politics, because just such ridiculous crap on both ends, and it, that sucks us all in, and hey, I'm, I'm like that too, I watch, you know, I watch the ripping up and very carefully, and what, was it pre-ripped or not? Oh, I don't know, but we'll find out, you know, wait, wait, that wait. kind of was thing. Was it pre-ripped? In other words, is there a suggestion that she, like, perforated it? I didn't see that. Oh, yeah, there were, there were, yeah, there were talk, there was a, there's a ripping conspiracy that I saw in some quarters. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but, we'll continue. And, you know, I'm and, learning and then, already. And the people saying like, well, if you look, he didn't really shake Pence's hand and maybe he just wasn't aware. And I got to say, geez, OP people, who cares if this is what you're focusing on, then you're focusing on the wrong things. I think what we need to focus on is the fact that the State of the Union, like with everything Donald Trump does, has become uh, this sort of narcissistic campaign rally sort of reality TV event. And I long for the pre-Wilsonian days when it was just delivered as a letter to the to the Congress. The Jeffersonian method. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about well, it, Ken? I, I, I wouldn't like to be identified with Jeffersonian anything, but that's another... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's true. Well, I, I, anyway, just historically speaking, right? He's the yeah, one yeah, who ends yeah. it. That's yeah. all. I'm, I'm not making you a Jefferson. Okay, so. Thank you. <laughs> Ken, what did you yeah, think? I, I, I agree with Michael. I, I also thought the speech was itself quite appalling, that it was, you know, a combination of lies and, and vitriol and, and racism. And I think there were even some some minor um, crimes committed during it because I oh, think he... Uh, what um, were the crimes? Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of these people that he used as props and then he rewarded them in some way, you know, somebody you know, he shows up and gets a scholarship or shows up and gets a, some other kind of prize. You know, I, I think he's basically using um, the resources of the United States government there as uh, as 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 political props to for, for his own um, campaign really some some of those stunts and that does violate the Hobbs Act you know I'm not expecting him to be prosecuted or impeached for it but it seems like the same basic kind of conduct that he was just impeached for at, at a much lower level but you know the idea of trying to use the U.S. military aid to to get some political benefit uh, out of the Ukrainian president you know you you take a sort of you know junior version of that and it's using you know money from the United States Treasury to uh, to, to to give a a kid a scholarship who's Whose who's, whose father was killed by a, an immigrant or something? So it's the same kind of same kind of conduct, I think. Yeah, it's more more the kind of thing you'd expect to see on an episode of Oprah or something like that than the actual. You know, look under yeah. your seat. You've just won a new car. Yeah. And, you know. and, and, and when U.S. when resources are being paid out of the U.S. Treasury for that kind of stuff, exactly. You know, yeah, that does make it illegal. So now here, yeah, I thought about it. well, well, and and here's one of the things that made me think about this and want to talk about it. And that is not that I want to get too sucked into the, you know, who do we side with or any of that. But what I noticed is, is that lots of, a lot of young, and so I'm curious about, especially from on your point, Mike, it seemed like these image moments were something that captured younger people's attention in a way that the impeachment and other things didn't. I can't tell you how many students were very interested, they you know, hadn't been interested in anything, but they, they have comments and questions about 
Nancy Pelosi ripping up a speech or Donald Trump, you know, uh, not shaking Nancy Pelosi's hand. That seemed to really resonate because I think it was very much made for uh, for the image based small text communication format. And so, you know, you talk about wanting to go off in the desert island. I can understand that. But do you think that these kinds of moments are maybe more important than we give them credit because we're downplaying their significance and and, and just missing out how they're, I I don't mean this as an insult, but memeable. Yeah. I mean, there are moments more and more as the years go by that I just feel like we're essentially all doomed uh, and that everyone should pick up a copy of, of Brave New World and, and Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death and <laughs> get thoroughly depressed along with me because I think we see all this, you know, playing out. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think you may be right. And that's a that's a horrifically depressing and sad sort of note. But I hope you're wrong. Ken, what do you think? Am I right or am I wrong? Well, I think right and wrong because I think you're right about the phenomenon, but I don't know that it's uh, significant. I think I think you know it may be that the, these 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 trivial things become the the conversation for a few days, but then those few days pass, and and I don't think they have any real significant lasting impact on anything. But you know, why that, not? that's a good I, I'm glad you brought that up, Ken, because I, I, I want to agree with that. And I think you're right that any single event. But here's here's my concern is that if you string together enough of those, they crowd out so much of substance. And then so coll- individually, they're not a big deal. But collectively, I think maybe they are. And maybe Trey, I don't know. I know. You, you've this is more your area that that maybe that's in part what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I think a fact that these kinds of as I'm kind of calling them memeable moments, I think that's the only thing that fits through the primary communication channels that most of us see repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again. And and so I would agree with you on that one, Mike. That it's that repetition of learning through these channels. And if this is what's going to make it on the channels and not say something longer and more substantive, I mean, ask somebody what the content of the State of the Union speech was because it was in an hour, right? I mean, who, I I defy us if we were to go out into our respective cities and just start pulling people in the downtown, if we could find anybody who even listened to 15 minutes of it or could give us one item from what, what, what he said. But I bet you anything that it would be somewhere in the 70% mark, the 80% mark, who could say, oh, yeah, they, yeah, she tore up the speech or, oh, yeah, he didn't shake her hand. Yeah, you know, and my concern is is more that people talk about that and then they won't hear as much about, for instance, the administration retaliating against the state of New York and denying new global entry, uh, you know, uh, uh, applications because of their uh, because of their policy not to cooperate in certain ways with uh, with Homeland Security on driver's license checks. And so that's the kind of story where there are a number of moving parts and there are some potentially reasonable cases. Maybe both sides can make it rhetorically, but it's more complex and it's not memeable at all. I don't think not so much as ripping up a speech. And that's the kind of stuff that really affects people in their everyday lives far more than any state of the union will. 
Yeah, I, I agree. But the only thing that the reason I'm not as alarmed as Michael here, I guess, is even though I agree with Trey that probably many, many, many more people know about the, the ripping up and the not handshaking than know about the content of the speech. But I don't think anybody's missing anything by not knowing about the content of that speech. I think <laughs> almost almost anyone's better off for not having heard yeah. that speech. I mean, and, uh, I, I, and and and. and and I also think there's no political impact because I don't think anybody on either side, nobody who's inclined to vote for Trump, nobody's inclined to vote against Trump, nobody's undecided is going to have their vote changed by by that whole um, episode about the handshake and the paper tear. Yeah. I yeah, suppose I right. that maybe I'd be more optimistic on your side if I thought that the things that were determining vote choice were, were going to be more substantive, which I, th- I think that's kind of what you're leaving there with. And while maybe that's not the moment uh, that defines anybody's vote, I'm not sure if the thing that's going to define anybody's vote is much better. Yeah, you may be right. Yeah. <laughs> well, gentlemen, it has been wonderful uh, doing the show with you both. So we have uh, you know, the, the three guys today. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Mike and Ken. I want to remind listeners uh, that if you are a supporter, the three of us, yes, the three of us are going to be doing a bonus show in just mere moments where we're going to put some odds on some candidates and little do either of they know, I have a surprise question that I did not share with them that we're going to discuss on the bonus show. And, and, and oh. for listeners, if you're interested in what that is, become a supporter, listen to the show, and you're going to get both of these gentlemen surprised. But I think maybe one of the most important, profound questions they have ever been asked. That will be on the bonus show. (laughs) Uh, I also want to let you know, but by the time that you hear this, uh, this is going to be ready for you on our uh, supporters only page. We have other items like the quick take uh, and to become a supporter to get these kinds of bonus materials. All you have to do is check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or some random thought you want to share with us, you can always reach us at snail mail at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us, and we sometimes post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. More recently, though, we've been working on Reddit, bipartisan politics uh, on Reddit. Uh, additionally, you can follow us on Twitter at politicsguys. Know that subscribing to the show really does help, as does sharing this and your favorite episodes. You talking to other people is the best advertising we have, and we greatly appreciate it. So is leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app, Spotify, you happen to be using. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Marano, Andra Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show was produced by myself, Ray Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.